Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Robert Bryant, the CEO of Exalta Coding Systems. Exalta is a $7.6 billion market cap company that manufactures and distributes high performance coatings that go into the industrial, automotive, and refinished end markets. The company was originally a division of DuPont that was founded in 1866, but was carved out by private equity firm Carlyle and then taken public in 2014. Exalta is the global leader in providing coatings to auto body repair shops and is a top three supplier to auto OEMs. The COVID-induced lockdowns and subsequent supply chain issues, not to mention the ongoing semiconductor shortage that is plaguing the car companies, have presented a number of challenges to the company. Given the dynamic backdrop and the recovery the company is seeing in certain end markets, I thought it would be an opportune time to catch up with Robert about the evolution of the company since going public in 2014, the long-term growth opportunities within the global refinished market, what it was like to have Berkshire Hathaway as a company's top shareholder, and how the company is navigating rapid raw material inflation and shortages. For full disclosure, Cove Street owns Exalta shares. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Exalta Coding Systems CEO, Robert Bryant. As always, We will start this podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. In my opinion, a really big moment occurred when Exalta came public in 2014. Specifically, what is now Exalta was a division of DuPont that was carved out by private equity company Carlyle in 2013. And then, after a very short time, Carlyle took the company public in 2014. You started as CFO in 2013. What was the process of taking Exalta public so quickly after the acquisition, like for you? Well, it was a tremendous challenge, Ben, in terms of actually coordinating the uh, carve out of the business out of DuPont, because again, it wasn't run as a business. It was a collection of assets. And so we had to carve all those assets out. And uh, it was a very, very heavy lift uh, in terms of the, in terms of the carve out, carve out process. But fortunately, we knew from the very beginning that in this case, most likely, uh, Exalta w- was going to go public uh, as opposed to being sold to uh, a strategic partner. So we kind of put in place from the very beginning a lot of the thinking and processes and systems and procedures that a public company would put in place. So we had a running start. 
but I don't think that we ever would have imagined that 21 months um, after the close of the deal, that we would have been a, a, a public company. So we were doing a lot of multitasking in terms of uh, setting up the original organizational structure, uh, really charting a new strategy for the company at that time, doing the carve out, hiring in uh, some new people onto the management team, transitioning over all of the systems, uh, and really just getting the company up and running at the same time uh, as getting the company ready to go public. What happened, though, was that the company's results, uh, you know, kind of far exceeded the owner's expectations at that point in time. And the IPO market was quite strong. So Carlisle decided to take the company uh, public after 21 months instead of the original four to five years that we all expected it would be. And one thing that I always worry about as a potential shareholder of a company that PE is taking public is that the company's not quite ready to be public and it's kind of being jammed into the public markets. You know, you had a very short time window to from the carve out to the IPO. Were there any ways that the company was not quite ready to be public in your eyes? Well, I think anytime you take the company public, um, there are a number of processes and systems across all aspects of the company that, you you know, that that you want to have ready. And I think for the most part, you know, we had a lot of the basics ready. Could we have benefited from a little bit more time uh, in order to do that? I think we could have. Administratively, I think we had, you know, most of the functions, some of the key functionality that we wanted set up and working, you know, kind of going. But if you thought about the Kind of operational and manufacturing footprint of the company, there were a number of changes that we wanted to make that we didn't really have the chance, you know, the chance to make at the very beginning, because the time period was so compressed that we subsequently made, um, you know, after going public. So a number of, um, in particular, one-time, you know, one-time charges related to severance or moving around plants or shutting down plants, that those types of things you know, occurred after, you know, we went public. So your reconciliation of, of kind of uh, adjusted numbers to gap numbers, um, you know, you have more question and more noise around that um, early on, I think when you tend to go public, whereas if you look at, you know, companies that are kind of five or six years in before they go public, a lot of that's already been accomplished. But I think through, you know, clear and transparent communication with investors and just being very open uh, about what those things are, you can navigate that. And, and when this company was owned by DuPont, was it kind of, well, I know you said it was a collection of assets, but were these neglected assets that didn't quite get enough investment and part of your role, especially as a public company, was to reinvest in those assets? Or was that not such a big deal for you, for Exalta? I think it was more actually more a question of um, where they wanted to focus their efforts. And at the time, you know, DuPont had decided to focus particularly on the biosciences side, the agricultural side, the life sciences side, and coatings just really didn't fit into what uh, were the direction that DuPont was going in strategically. Um, And so that's why, you know, the the company became or the assets became non-core within the DuPont portfolio and and, and why they decided to, to, to divest the assets. So I think it all comes back into getting assets in the hands of the best uh, of the best owners, and I think being independent, we and private, we were able to make a lot of really tough decisions early on. That if we had been part of a public company, would have been much more difficult to execute. So I think some people asked us, "Hey, could you have imagined uh, all the changes that you all made transpiring while 
Exalta was still a division within DuPont. And I think just realistically, there, there are a lot of decisions that you want to make when you're, you know, when you're private and a lot of tough calls that may have, you know, one-time costs associated with them and so forth that might be unpalatable when you're in a regular quarterly earnings uh, flow. That's just easier when you're private. And moving forward in time a little bit, let's move uh, to 2018 when you became CEO. So relative to what you what was visible to outside shareholders, what was the state of the company you inherited uh, when you became CEO in 2018? Well, I think I inherited a uh, you know a, a very a very good company with a lot of strong assets, um, very good very good technology. Um, you know, some very good talent across the organization. But I think there were a few things that were contextual to that, to that point in time. Um, one of them was, if you think about Exalta's history, really about every two years, there had been some type of enterprise level potential change in control. So the business kind of being declared non-core within the DuPont portfolio in 2010, the sale process in 2012, Carlisle buying the business in 2013, uh, 2014 taking in public, 2015, we had some merger discussions with Valspar that unfortunately ended up with Sherwin-Williams interloping and acquiring Valspar uh, for a much higher value than what the Exalta Valspar economics could justify in terms of putting the two companies together. And then in 2017, we entered into merger discussions with Axo Nobel and then we experienced an interloper in terms of Nippon Paint making a bid for Exalta that caused those discussions to, to end. And so we really culturally, I think organizationally, everybody had a mindset that Exalta was going to be sold. This is a company that is going to change hands. It's going to be sold to a strategic uh, at some point uh, in the future. And so when I became CEO, I think one of the things that I really wanted to change was we're here to build a company for the long term. And there are certain foundational elements to me that were very important. And the first foundational element was really around our people and our talent. And having people believe that they could come to Exalta and build a career, uh, you know, have career development, grow in their careers, and really see themselves building a future at Exalta and not feeling like, oh, in another year or two years, the company is going to be, is going to be sold. So that was very important to me. The other element that was really important to me was innovation. And the company had been very good at what I'll call incremental innovation, um, improving the products um, kind of each year, you know, along with the industry, uh, well ahead in certain areas of the business, in particular in refinish and some of our light vehicle technologies, but not really thinking about step change type of innovation or innovations that could really leapfrog uh, our competition. And so that was something that I also really wanted to, to, to focus on. The other you know, two elements were really top line growth. So if you look at Exalta at the time in 2018 and still today, we have the highest EBITDA margins of any player in the coatings industry. And that's fantastic, but that's only fantastic if you're growing. And the growth rate of the company had only been around three and a half percent organically. Um, through that time period. And I really wanted to step up the rate of organic growth at the company. So that was going to require a different focus, a different mentality, different incentives um, around the entire organization. And then lastly, um, operational excellence is something that I'm very passionate about. 
not just in manufacturing, but across all aspects of the, of the company. So those were the four foundational elements um, when I became CEO that I decided to really focus on. And the biggest one, I think, was getting people, again, to see that we're, we were going to build a long-term independent public company. Now, we were always, we're always of course, going to focus on uh, what's best for shareholders. And if someone, you know, in the future approaches the company and has a value creating transaction, of course, like any public company, we would look at it, but it's different that as a public company being open to it, as opposed to seeking it out. And so that was a very important shift in messaging and, and, and culture in the organization. And I think one, you know, that we were successful at. Compounders is brought to you in partnership with Tegas. We created Compounders to uncover the lessons and frameworks of the best capital compounders in the world. And if you are a professional investor, VC, or operator, and you appreciate the deep research into the businesses explored on this podcast, check out tegas.co slash compounders. With Tegas, you can learn about any company directly from former execs, current customers, and industry experts, all of which are in position to offer unique insights into companies' growth its customer value, and its competition. What makes Tegas different is that you don't have to lead your own expert calls. The platform offers instant access to the world's largest collection of investor-led call transcripts on companies such as Compounders Guests, Viasat, Element Solutions, and Avid Technology. All you have to do is log in and you'll get instant access to nearly 25,000 expert call transcripts. And the best part, the Tegas collection grows larger with each investor and company that joins. Still want to do your own expert calls? Tegas is the right solution. Experts that are just as good or better than what you'd find on other networks, but starting at just $300 per call, not the $1,000 or more others charge. If you're ready to go deeper on the next compounding business, head to tegas.co slash compounders for a free trial. I can personally say that having access to the Tegas platform and Rolodex of experts has fundamentally changed the quality of due diligence Coast Street does on both new and existing ideas. And so would you say that you are mostly through what you would call that, that cultural transformation where people can feel like this is a public company that's going to be around, it's a career I can make, and I don't have to be worry about it being bought by private equity and being fired. Do you feel like you're there? And then what would be a signpost that in your mind? that you know you you guys had made that transition from kind of having a some kind of transaction every two years to being more of a stable organization well i do want to come back ben just to where we left off on the time period because you had asked me up to 2018 uh shortly after i i, I became ceo um we began a uh, a strategic review process in the middle of 2019 that lasted through the end of the first quarter in in 2020 and then, of course, like everybody else, we got hit with, with COVID. So a lot of the changes around those four kind of strategic elements, um, we started on them, but many of them were, were put on hold um, until we kind of came through the first few months of COVID. And then really in the summer of 2020, um, we were able to step in and really be very decisive in a number of actions. So I think as we sit here um, you know, in, in late 2021, not that much time has passed yet since we completed the strategic review. So I think we need more time to pass to build up the confidence of the organization that that is the plan. But what I would say is that I reiterate that with our employee base and with our investor base frequently, that that's what we're trying to do. 
And if you look at the actions that I've taken as CEO and that we as a management team have taken together in the last 15 months, you see a series of actions that are directly aligned with building a company for the long term. So I think people see that we're putting our money where our mouth is. And one of the things you did was you recently decided to change the organizational structure. Um, so, you know, I've never worked for a big public company. And so I don't like, there's all these terms that get thrown about that, you know, whether it's centralized or decentralized matrix structure, non-matrix structure, you know, there it's all kind of amorphous to me and probably to some of our listeners. So I'm interested. So you guys used to have a matrix structure in place um, and now you create a new structure. I'd love to hear, you know, what was wrong with the old one and what you think is more beneficial about the new structure you've created. Coming out of DuPont, the way DuPont ran the business within DuPont was through regional leaders. So the organizational structure and the IT systems were set up so that P&L responsibility rested in the regions. So if you think about our four end markets, refinish, industrial, light vehicle, and commercial vehicle, um, those end markets um, were, were strictly that, end markets. But the P&L responsibility, again, rested in the regions. The organization was set up with a regional structure. So back in 2013, um, we decided that we wanted to manage each business that was truly global in a global fashion. So we brought in a global leader for light vehicle because, of course, dealing with OEM customers, it's a their global purchase decisions, their global vehicle platforms. That one was kind of was kind of obvious. Then, given the uh, potential for growth in the business in industrial, we brought in a global industrial leader. And uh, that person came in and was successful in multiple acquisitions and building out our industrial platform somewhat. But really, they were, com- they were, gl- they were global commercial leadership roles, not global PL roles. The PLs still rested and were managed with the regions. And then eventually, with Refinish, we made the transition and we started to run that as a global business as well, again, commercially speaking. And so what ended up happening was, um, and it was something that we really started to notice in 2017 and 2018, is just the inefficiency in decision-making, the lack of clarity around accountability and ownership, when many decisions would have three people that would have to agree. So you'd have to have a regional leader, your global commercial leader, and maybe even a functional leader agree. So decisions that should take one person, maybe at most two people, were taking three or two people and sometimes three people. So at a four and a half billion dollar, you know, top line size and our overall complexity, I felt that it was too heavy an organizational structure for us to really run efficiently with accountability and transparency, but then also speed of decision-making. Because if I look at our big three global competitors, they're larger than we are. So one of our strengths has to be in our ability to make decisions more quickly and move more quickly and be more targeted. And that is our strategy, but our organization didn't reflect that. So the other issue I thought was from a, uh, uh, a successorship perspective or successor um, perspective for my role in the regional leaders, none of them would have global responsibility that you need to have, I think, to be a good successor for my role. And so when we pivoted and got rid of the regional leadership structure and we pivoted to just global business units and global functions. Now in our global leaders, we have people that are managing global businesses. So I think it gives us as a board much more visibility and the opportunity to evaluate people um, for successorship into my role. 
But most importantly, from how we run the business, uh, now those business unit leaders are able to make decisions much more freely than they were as commercial leaders in the old structure. And it also changed the profile of leader that we were looking for to run our global businesses. Now it wasn't a global commercial or a global sales leader. It was a truly global P&L leader. And since the businesses were being set up that way, we could also attract um, you know, better quality talent, um, more skilled talent to come in and run those businesses. And that's exactly what we've done, both in terms of who we've hired externally and then who we've promoted internally. And I really believe that without a doubt, at our size and current complexity, it's the best way, it's the best structure in the current environment. Now, as we grow and if we became, become substantially larger, then your organizational structure, you know, it might get tweaked or adjusted, but for now, it's the right structure. In your response to that question, you said the word refinish. And my guess is that most people are not familiar with what part of the coding's ecosystem that refers to. So would you talk about what that business is, Exalta's position in the market, and why you think it's such a unique set of assets? Hmm. Well, let me just start off by saying that refinish is a fantastic business and uh, it's a uh, very dynamic business. It's the highest profit business of any of the verticals within coatings. And we're the number one player in the world in the refinish business. Now, the refinish business is automotive aftermarket. So it's automotive aftermarket paint. So essentially, when your car has a collision and it's got to be repaired, it goes into a body shop. And the paint that goes on your vehicle in that instance is what we call refinish or automotive aftermarket paint. Um, but it's a different paint. It's a different technology than what is sprayed on your car when, at an OEM factory. So at an OEM factory, it's what we call a high bake technology. It's a paint product that is uh, engineered to cure or be heated um, and then seal at high temperature, uh, quickly dry, and then go through the state. So it's designed for maximum throughput in an automotive factory environment. The refinish side of the business is designed to be sprayed at pretty close to ambient temperatures in a body shop um, without having to apply that same degree of heat. And it's called low bake technology. So it's a different technology, a different product formulation from the um, original um, automotive equipment uh, paint that is, that is put on in the factory. Now, the market itself is about $8 billion in size globally. We're the number one player. We um, sell through predominantly distribution, which then sells into body shops around the world. And similar to OEM paint, the productivity of the product and the performance of the product at the body shop is what really creates a tremendous amount of value for the overall body shop economics. So to give you an example, um, the paint that's sprayed inside uh, on a given repair might only be about five at most 7% of the cost of a total repair, but it is the number one determinant in how profitable that repair is for the body shop. Because the amount of space you've got to have for a paint booths inside your body shop and the amount of time it takes in that process are, is critical. So our product is designed to use the least amount of labor, the least amount of energy, and to spray in the smallest footprint possible inside the body shop. And so if the body shop 
has, for example, a certain number of hours that have been scoped out by the insurance company for the actual paint repair, but they're able to get the paint job done quicker, they still get paid out the total number of hours that the insurance company has negotiated with them. And the remainder is pure profit for the body shop. So um, it's a very important part of their, of their overall profitability. It also has a very large service component uh, to it. And we have the largest fields force and field technical force in the industry. And then lastly, I would say from a product innovation uh, perspective, we also have the leading product in the industry. Um, our, our product sprays it in about 50% faster and uses about a third less paint than our next closest uh, competitor. So we have a pretty large technological advantage and we're always investing in the next generation of technology for that, for that total solution to help our customers achieve um, even greater levels of profitability and also to keep our lead ahead of the competition. Given that this is a podcast called Compounders, I'm always interested in moats. So what would you say the moat is around the refinished business? And maybe compare that to some of your other segments and, and businesses. I mean, are there, would you say the refinished business has maybe the most compelling moat of, of all of them? It's a, um, it's a business that has, um, as you say, I mean, a, a, not only a large moat, but multiple, multiple competitive moats. So, when you think about the refinished business from the pure, the pure technology side of the equation, we invest about $180 million a year in R&D and technology, a little bit more than 4% of sales. Um, that type of an investment is table stakes if you're going to be a global coatings player. So for a new entrant, you've got a tremendous amount of R&D investment. Secondly, since paint is expensive to ship long distances because it's liquid, um, you've got to have local manufacturing. You also need to have local manufacturing because of customer response and service times. So you've got to have a global manufacturing footprint to really be able to service your customers. Then there is what I call the electronic and digital interface with refinished customers. So we have multiple systems in a body shop. And we could talk about each one of those, but first is our actual paint, um, our color matching system. So we have over 4 million colors that we're currently able to match. We can basically match any color that has ever been created or could be created. And that's through very sophisticated software technology and proprietary um, algorithms and software that are based on a vehicle's VIN number, uh, what state that vehicle has been in, the number of miles it's been driven, and then a color photo spectrometer that links up with our entire shop management and color retrieval system that together ensure a perfect, a, a, a perfect color match um, if the painter follows all the steps, all the steps correctly. But we also have um, an automated uh, mixing machine solution that we've, that we've talked about called Daisy Wheel, which um, allows you instead of manually mixing together the different colors to create uh, the color that you wanna paint, we have an automated mixing machine that's also digitally connected to our shop management software and our color retrieval system. 
And then we also have an electronic interface for ordering and supplier management in between Exalta and our end body shop so that they can order, they can order directly. So the whole thing is a very tight ecosystem that is based on, on software. And it's really based much more on the performance and what the product enables the body shop to do, as opposed to the per gallon or per liter uh, cost of the, of, of the paint itself. So a lot of different, a lot of different moats. The other moat that I think is a, a, a very important distinguishing element for Exalta. And that is, we don't try to prescribe that a body shop should use a particular technology. So what do I mean by that? Solvent-borne paint is one type of paint. Water-based paint is another type of paint. Solvent-borne paint is less expensive. It's easier to spray. The quality of spray booth that you have to have is lower. It's an easier system overall. Waterborne based solutions, um, the spray booth has modifications uh, that are a little bit more expensive. Um, it's a much more environmentally friendly product and it can allow you to have a greater level of productivity, but you have to have a certain break even volume to justify those investments because it's more expensive. Well, we have a solution for what I would call premium body shops, which are like multi-site operator body shops that are doing 500, 600 repairs a month, uh, in solvent borne and in waterborne. But if there's somebody that's more in the mainstream or the economy segment, and they prefer to spray solvent borne, we've got great solutions for them. But if they happen to be in a jurisdiction or a state where they want to spray solvent borne, um, but they're being pressured to spray waterborne, but they just don't have that break-even economics to really make the investment worth it. We have a low solids or a low solvent, high solids solvent-borne product. So it's solvent-borne meets all the requirements in all 50 states and in the certain countries where we sell it that sprays like solvent-borne. So again, we've got essentially solutions for every segment of the market and every size of body shop. And I think having that technological technological advantage coupled with the breadth of the product portfolio is another important moat. And I think one of the reasons why you've been aggressively investing in China is partially due to the refinish opportunity you see there over a long time, especially as a market goes between um, maybe from, from solvent-borne to more water-borne. So maybe talk a little bit about um, why you think China is a, a large growth opportunity for the market, uh, uh, sorry, for the company. And then um, maybe talk a little bit about the investments you've made there um, to capture that opportunity. Well, there's no doubt that China is a, uh, you know, is a, is a, uh, an important market from the perspective of uh, growth and that even at lower growth rates that we're seeing, you know, kind of forecasted out of the country now, it is still, you know, one of the top two largest markets um, in, in the world. So I think it's a market that, um, you know, we're keenly, you know, we're keenly focused on. And again, it's about having different solutions available in the marketplace. And what's interesting about, about China is that everybody thinks of it as more of a mainstream and an economy market, more of a solvent-borne market. But people forget that from an environmental perspective, the Chinese government has very, very high aspirations. And uh, you know, many, many years ago, they mandated that any new OEM paint capacity coming online would have to be waterborne, could no longer be solvent-borne. So only expansions of existing solvent-borne paint plants are authorized by the government. 
any new paint capacity coming on board online has to, a new construction has to be waterborne. So the market is definitely evolving towards a greater level of environmental um, aspirations. And that's good uh, for Exalta because only a couple of us, only a few of us in the world can really make uh, products at that level uh, of precision and that hit the requirements that they're, that they're pushing for. So I think you've, you know, you look at China and it's a market that's, you know, X period of time between, you know, kind of behind where the US and Europe are, but you can see what the trajectory, you know, what the, the trajectory of that market is. So we've kind of got a blueprint of how we need to be positioned. And you also see it in other markets we're in, like commercial vehicle. Commercial vehicles in China used to be, you know, expected life of a truck was maybe two years, maximum three years. Now we see China building, you know, the heavy duty truck market becoming more and more like the U.S. market. And so the quality of product they want and the performance characteristics of the product they want only are getting are getting higher. So I think that positions us really well. We uh, in terms of investment we've made in the country, uh, we've expanded our plant in Shanghai, specifically in Jiading for more waterborne uh, waterborne coatings capacity to meet that demand. And then in northern China, uh, we recently announced the construction of a facility in, in Jilin uh, province that is going to be focused predominantly on our mobility, on our mobility business, uh, but that also is going to be an advanced manufacturing site in northern China to serve our customers there. And then we continue uh, to evaluate the market, um, you know, for acquisitions and for alliances. So I think overall, you know, very pleased with the direction that we're that we're headed in China. And I think the mega trends in China are playing very nicely into what our capabilities are. We haven't really touched on capital allocation quite yet, so I'm interested about the process that Exalta employs for assessing where to put in organic investment dollars to work. So, and, and how does China fit in that? So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, you know, we have an entire world we can invest in. We have four different segments, two different divisions, right? Or sorry, two different divisions, four segments. Um, how do we, you know, how do we put those dollars to work? So maybe talk a little bit about that process and then how, how you decide on China as a, as a venue for investment. Well, if we look at our, you know, our strategic plan is really what our strategic plan is really what drives, what drives everything. And so we've got a very well-defined strategic plan. So for organic organic investment, right? We have maintenance capex, we have growth capex, we have productivity capex, and really everything links back to a business case for each and every one of those each and every one of those investments. So as we as we look at each one of the four end markets that we serve and what our plans in there, the the capex you know matches up along along with what we're trying to do and the role of each one of the businesses in the in the portfolio. So I think if we if we look at Exalta today from an organic perspective, um, I, I you should look to see the majority of or a larger portion I should say of, of capex and investment going into the our industrial business. Our industrial business is really our growth platform over the next 5 to 10 years. We have opportunity in all three businesses, but our industrial business is the one that has the most white space. Uh, both in markets that we're currently in, as well as other markets within industrial and close adjacencies around that. So I'd expect to see that some of our organic investment will be more oriented you know, toward that. We'll still be financing growth and refinish. We'll still be financing growth in light vehicle and commercial vehicle. But I think we're really looking for outsized growth in industrial, just given what a big opportunity it is for Exalta. 
One interesting thing about this company is that it's, it's a relatively new public company, but it has a history that goes back all the way to 1866. So if an employee started at Exalta today, is there a way to give them context of that history or you know, help the, inoculate them in the ethos of the company, given that it's been around for so long? Absolutely. It, the, the roots of the company go all the way back, as you said, to 1866. And that really relates to um, Herbert's, which was acquired by DuPont out of Hearst in 1999. Um, so, you know, the acquisition itself goes back to 1999. And then, of course, Herbert's goes back, you know, all the way back to 1866. So I think it's leveraging um, the essence of, of, of what that long history, or in particular around innovation around color around you know really coatings for things that move and transport it's leveraging that but then it's also looking at where the world is going in the future and one of the areas that we see is a tremendous amount of growth is electrification so we are investing heavily in our energy solutions business in positioning several projects and initiatives around the broader topic of electrification. And that's not just electric vehicles, it's electrification of the places we, we live, the places we work, and how we get between where we live and where we work. There's a whole electric ecosystem out there that we really see as a long-term, you know, as a long-term trend. So that's, you know, much more futuristic and, and more oriented in that direction. So I think we wanna leverage the core roots um, you know, of that 150 plus year history of the company and the, you know, G German engineering and kind of some of the German foundational elements that make up the company's culture. And at the same time, we're melding that and mixing that with this much more futuristic orientation. I want to go back to something you said, you know, you talked a lot about the growth you see in industrial. So, um, just as a little backdrop, so you mentioned when, when, when in the response to a, a previous question about how you, the company almost merged with Valspar and Sherwin-Williams swooped up and, and, and bought Valspar instead. But um, I'm interested, you walked away with a Constellation Prize, which was one of the Valstar businesses that got divested. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that, um, that, that Constellation Prize you walked away with, but also you know, just anything about that experience to have, you know, to, to have another company swoop in and like almost uh, dislodge a, a merger that you guys were probably culturally very focused on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, to be honest with you, when that happened, it was a real, it was a real punch in the gut. Um, I, I, I had led that, that deal um, internally and, um, you know, it spent a Thanksgiving, a Christmas, you know, significant amount of time uh, working on that, on that deal had a lot of synergies on the cost side as well as the commercial side, and uh, you know it was it was tough to have that happen. But of course, that can that can happen anytime two companies are discussing coming together. Um, but one of the you know one of the aspects of Valspar that we really prized at the time was the wood coatings business, and we really thought that the that business itself would fit in very well within our within our industrial uh, our industrial portfolio. And so when Sherwin, you know, stepped in and acquired Valspar and they had to divest Valspar's wood business um, and we participated in that in that process and were successful in acquiring the business. Um, it was a bittersweet um, consolation prize, as you know, as you call it, Ben. But, uh, you know, good business, good management team. And we've been able to leverage that business beyond what it was at the time 
which was predominantly a wood coatings business, we were able to first leverage it into um, not only wood coatings, but also luxury vinyl tile. So as much as we like wood, when it comes to flooring, luxury vinyl tile was at the time a, a very strong uh, trend and market shift. And so we uh, took advantage of that, began work on some uh, new products there, and were successful in expanding that product portfolio from just wood coatings into luxury vinyl tile coatings as well. And now kind of the transition that we're in is building that business into a broader building products portfolio. So we have a lot of innovation going on at the moment to build out the portfolio of that, of that business into a, uh, in, into a broader platform. And if you look at the results from some of your larger competitors um, over the last kind of 18 months, you know, companies that had quote unquote decorative exposure held up pretty well because apparently everyone spent COVID painting their house and redoing their cabinets and stuff like that. So I'm, I'm interested, like, is there, is there a general desire within the company to get more into decorative, as you say, you know, building out the, the wood coatings business um, or is that, you know, is, and is there an internal uh, kind of organic way to get there? Or is it, you know, something that you have to acquire into to get bigger into <clears throat> the decorative? Well, I would say, you know, if we, if we had the right opportunity at the right price, certainly we would expand into decorative coatings. Um, I think the likelihood of that is perhaps not very, not very high. Um, although I would never say, I'd never say never. Certainly if we'd been in, um, in decorative coatings over the last 18 months, it would have been, it would have been very good because decorative of course has just taken off during, uh, during, during COVID. Um, and I think what's going to be interesting now is I think we'll start to see that, uh, that slow down uh, on a comparable basis, relatively speaking. And I think we're very well positioned for a rebound in, uh, in automotive and as well as a rebound in refinish or the aftermarket um, automotive category. So I like the way that we're set up for 22 and 23, but for the last 18 months, it would have been great to have a larger amount of decorative exposure. I mean, for sure when it's almost 80% of their sales and for PPG and AXO, it's 30 something percent of each one of their sales. And that certainly buffered, you know, I think how they traded uh, during, that, during that time period. We've, uh, of course, we look at decorative and we've looked at deals in decorative. Since we're not in the business currently, we don't have the same synergies uh, that some of our peers would have. And if you look at actionable assets, for example, in the US, there aren't many that would get you into a top three market share position, which is what really what we would target. Um, and the market here is fairly consolidated. When you look at Europe, um, it's not really, a, it's more of a local market as opposed to a pan-European market. So could you acquire a meaningful position in a given country or two? Yeah, you possibly could. Um, but again, uh, it, it would only be at a market or two. And then in Asia, there are some, you know, a couple of very strong in Asian paints in Nippon, a couple of very strong Asian players. So coming back to capital allocation, it's probably the most important um, decision that I think that a board and a management team makes. And there are simply other uh, aspects of the market or other segments of the market where we can allocate capital that'll have a higher return. And again, if I step back and I look at the megatrends around where the world is going, I think that there are some smart acquisitions that we can make that line up a little bit better with some of those megatrends and would generate 
a higher return on invested capital than if we deployed capital to uh, a decorative business. That being said, uh, it's certainly not something that we've ruled out, but it would have to be the right asset. It'd have to be the right price. And as you alluded to in, in, in that response, doing M&A and codings right now is pretty expensive. Um, so how do you, you know, how do you put on your value investing hat and, and look for mispriced assets or underappreciated assets, you know, especially, and how do you find those given that there's so many strategics out there looking for codings deals? And of course, PE firms love uh, codings companies. You know, is there a way to find bargains in your mind and how, and how would you go about doing that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think you have to step back and remember that M&A is a, is a, for me at least, the way I think about M&A is that you, first, everything should be based on what your strategy is. And our strategy is very well defined. And we have mapped exactly what are the targets from an acquisition perspective we have in each business. What are the ones that are interesting and what are the ones that are not? We also, from an adjacency perspective, have you know, mapped out very well in great detail what targets we want. So inevitably, things will come up. Um, and yes, you can increase your sales by acquiring them. Uh, but you're probably at this point in time going to have to pay through the nose. And so we're pretty tight on from an acquisition perspective. It's really got to reinforce the strategy and the direction that we're going, as opposed to be a mechanism to generate uh, more top line, more top line growth. So the, I think from a valuation perspective, one of the things we do in being very strategic is that most of these assets are private. And so we're out there in conversations with owners of, of companies or groups uh, that, are, that may own companies together. And that dialogue is constant. And so we're talking about commercial alliances, strategic alliances, joint ventures, where a number of means that we're having conversations with them. And then you want to be the first call when they think about uh, potentially exiting. And I think we've got a good track record, um, a good track record of, of doing that. But again, we look at acquisitions and we, for any investment we make, major CapEx or acquisition, we compare it against what are other uses of capital, including buying back stock. And since Exalta stock is at such a discount uh, versus peers at the moment, it's very, very compelling to, to buy back stock. So our, the hurdle rate for what we want on a deal is actually pretty high because of the size of that discount. And as a result, we've been buying back you know, throughout 2021, our stock much more aggressively than we ever have in the past. And we'll continue to do so as long as that disconnect remains there. And one of the hallmarks of a, of a good company is a company that's able to handle adversity. And I would argue this company has been handling adversity basically constantly for the last 18 months. First, it was COVID and lockdowns, and now it's supply chain issues. So I'm interested, you know, this company is being affected by rapidly rising raw material costs. And then there's a ship, chip shortage that's obviously impacting your, your OEM partners. So, and of course, the pandemic hasn't left us fully. So I'm interested in like how in the world you are keeping your people optimistic and motivated and focused on growth as opposed to just like being whipsawed by everything that's happened over the last uh, 18 months. <clears throat> well, I think it actually goes back to... Uh what happened during COVID, the, you know, the start of COVID. And, you know, one question that we always got during even like, even the IPO roadshow, frankly, back in 2014, and that we got all the way up through COVID was how would Exalta perform in the event of a downturn? 
And I think people thought of it as um, a global macroeconomic slowdown or maybe a turn in the uh, light vehicle market in terms of vehicle builds in the US or a big downturn in China. Something, you know, something like that is kind of what people envisioned as a downturn scenario and how would the company perform? And we had modeled all that and we had looked at how DuPont had performed in the past, but everybody really wanted to know. And so I think what COVID gave us was the chance to show people how decisively and how quickly we could act and also what the magnitude was that we could adjust our cost structure and our operating model and how quickly we could bounce back. So um, really, if you look at the performance of the company, say, in the, you know, the first quarter of last year, second quarter, and then the third quarter, um, how we bounce back because of the decisive actions that we took, I think people should take a lot of comfort in that when things get tough, you know, we will and can take action. So that, I think, gave people a lot of confidence inside the company, like, wow, if something really comes off the rails for a little while, we're able to react, you know, we're able to react quickly. Um, Internally, and I talk a lot about this with our global organization about how um, great fortunes have been amassed and great changes have been effectuated in a period of a great challenge or a crisis. And so when we think about the chip shortage or we think about all the cost pressure that's out there in the marketplace, I've continued to emphasize with the team you know, we're not going to cut our R&D and innovation investment. In fact, it's actually gone up a little bit. Um, we're going to continue to invest for the future. When it comes to how we work with our customers, um, we've just undergone, Hercule, made Herculean efforts in order to keep our customers supplied during COVID and then also during the supply chain challenges that we're all experiencing, uh, they're all experiencing right now. And Customers remember that. I mean, they remember when you really went the extra mile when things were tough to really help them out. And then we've also, um, I've tried to keep our commercial leaders focused on going out and getting growth. And I think a great example of that is in our light vehicle business, where um, we've seen obviously a big impact from the semiconductor shortage. Um, we've still gone out and, and won a great deal of business as we talked about on our last earnings call in our light vehicle business. And it might be kind of counterintuitive that if there's this chip crisis, why are you going out and winning all this business? Well, it's a long cycle business and it takes about nine months before that business comes online. So you hope things are better, you know, are better by then. But the message has been, you know, not to slow down. One of our strategic imperatives is, is growth. And that's not only in industrial, that's also in the mobility side of the business and the refinish side of the business. So I think people have a lot more self-confidence that we as a company can um, take the decisions that we need to take, but also make the decisions to build a great future. And one thing that I've been arguing is that companies um, that are in consolidated industries are going to have a lot of pricing power and ability to raise prices and then maybe even maintain some of those prices as raw material prices come back down. So I'm interested in you know, how as an organization you are dealing with the rising prices of all your inputs and, you know, having to take prices multiple times per year, how does that impact the organization and your sales force? And then also, you know, how should we think about this company's ability to maintain price in certain businesses uh, when hopefully we see some abatement in the inflationary pressures? You know, it's uh, coatings is one of those businesses where you you rarely see prices 
uh, lowered. So in our refinished business, as an example, you know, we've not, we've, I don't think we've ever lowered price. Um, we increase price every year um, in that business. The same thing in, in industrial. And in our mobility business, um, we adjust price um, along with, with inflation. There's just a lag as you negotiate, go through the negotiating process with your light vehicle customers there. And in commercial vehicle, it's a little bit, it's a little bit easier. But typically what you see, and we saw this in the 2017-2018 cycle, um, is that you know when you see raw material inflation peel off, you don't give back um, the, the price gains that you've had. You continue to increase prices, in particular in refinish and industrial, because of the customer support costs, because of the R&D and technology, because of the value we create. Um, you know, we're able to do that because we are making a big investment um, in, our, in our products to be able to, to enable the type of performance that we do in our customers. And we should price our products for that. And, and, and we do. But if we do see a pullback in raw material inflation, um, there will be, you know, attractive, um, I think, attractive margin expansion. And the you know, exact timing of that is anybody's, you know, anybody's guess. But we've seen that cycle before. You do give back a little bit where we now have indexed contracts, um, which is about 25% of our light vehicle business. And there's a six month lag to when those prices adjust. So we're just now getting the price increases from the inflation that started earlier this year. And we'll continue to get that through the first half of next year as well. Um, and in our building products business, we have a little bit of, uh, you know, it's part of that business that is uh, also on index, but for the most part, everything else is kind of openly negotiated. And we tend to um, hold on to price, broadly speaking. So that does set up very well. The other part that sets up well for us is that we never, you know, we haven't really changed our mentality in terms of how we're running, how we're managing costs at Exalta since COVID. In terms of the cost discipline around travel and entertainment, third-party consultant use, all the typical kind of indirect costs, um, backfilling positions, et cetera, we've held uh, pretty much with where we were during COVID. We've added, a, we've added some cost back, but we're going to really hold on to that uh, as, as long as we can. And our overall operating cost structure is lower than it was back in, in 2018 when I first became CEO. And so that also gives us incremental drop through or incremental operating leverage when things do swing back up. So I think it's going to be pretty interesting when we get to that juncture. You talk about running, you know, lean cost structure and, and being really efficient. One interesting thing happened in the last year is that the company had a temporary operational issue that occurred. And I'm not interested in, in what happened per se, but I'm interested in culturally, how do you, what is the process of turning a tough situation like that into a learning moment, either for the, you know, the individuals involved or for even for the whole company? Well, first and foremost, I, I think when you're dealing with customers, you're, you're, it's a relationship. And it's just like a relationship between two people. You have ups and you have downs. And in particular, you learn a lot about somebody when you see how they react when things are down. So when something, you know, the, the operational issue that we had, when that issue happened, um, how we reacted to it was going to determine a lot, uh, in particular about the you know the relationship with the customer, and I think our our team reacted you know very quickly, very transparently, root cause analysis you know root cause analysis and very qu 
quick and decisive action and very supportive of the, of the customer and, you know, not looking at the various parties involved in terms of who might be to blame or not, but really focusing on how do we ensure the best outcome for our customer? Um, and we've gotten a lot of kudos, um, you know, from the, from the customer involved in this particular case. Um, and, you know, so much so that I think our relationship is even stronger with this one particular customer. And we've even won additional business, you know, since the event happened. So I do think it is a learning experience and one that you have to, you have to embrace. Obviously, you want to embrace it so that it doesn't happen again. But it's also um, an opportunity to really show your true colors about how you react in a crisis. And a crisis, hopefully not one of this nature, but there are always crises that happen, whether they're internally generated by you as a supplier or internally generated at the customer or externally exogenously generated by the marketplace. And them knowing how you're going to react and what you're going to do says a lot. And it's a great opportunity to build the relationship. And that's exactly what we did. Switching gears quickly. Um... Given my value investing work roots, I would um, I'd be remiss if I didn't t- ask you about uh, having Berkshire Hathaway as a shareholder for a long time. Any wisdom you gleaned over the years from your relationship with Todd Combs and Berkshire? Hmm. Well, first, I would just say that um, you know Todd and the entire Berkshire organization are just a uh, a class act and uh, a really great group of people to work with. Um, Obviously, they're, you know, they're very long-term focused and really focus on, on, on long-term trends, um, you know, don't react to quarter-to-quarter fluctuations and, you know, provided you're performing are, you know, very, very supportive. So I think having Berkshire as a shareholder was a, a great experience. Um, you know, unfortunately, given Berkshire's desire to simplify, you know, their, their, their portfolio, just as part of their, you know, long-term planning, um, although for us, you know, 650 or, or $750 million investment might seem like a lot of money, uh, for Berkshire, it, you know, it's a pretty small and it's a pretty small investment. So as, as they work towards simplifying their, their portfolio and specifically, um, you know, when Todd, uh, became CEO of Geico, uh, that demanded a lot more of his time and his stock portfolio had grown from, I think, seven names when he first invested in Exalta back in 2014 in May to, uh, you know, over 50 names in just his portfolio. So, uh, you know, it had nothing to do with Exalta and everything to do with Berkshire's own internal kind of kind of strategy there. But they've been a great investor and a great partner. Uh, and they've said that they would always be there for us if there was ever, you know, anything that we, uh, you know, wanted to do strategically, um, that we could always count on them. So I consider them to be a good friend. And no conversation with a public company CEO would be complete without discussing the uh, big topic of ESG. So I know this company talks a lot about making its products more environmentally friendly. We talked a little bit about moving from solvent-borne to waterborne paints. So I'm interested how, you know, from a, from a philosophical basis, this company is changing either its mentality or products or policies to satisfy the uh, desires of the various stakeholders involved. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, you know, we, we have a great story to tell around, around ESG, both on the E, on the S, and, and also on the G. Um, from a governance perspective, I'll start there. 
if you look at where the company started when we became public in 2014 and all the changes we've made from a board governance and a corporate governance perspective, it's sort of every year we've made additional changes um, and enhancements to make it from a governance perspective, I think a very well-run company. And we've seen that reflected in the, in the scores. On the, on the S dimension, um, one of the areas in which um, you know, Exalta has really focused, and it's, not, it's easy for us not to focus on it because it's so natural, is that we're such a global organization, such a multicultural organization as it is, that the social component of it is actually quite, um, you know, comes quite naturally. That being said, I think on diversity and inclusion, that there's more that we can do, and there's more that we've done, and there's more that we will be doing um, on, on that dimension. And on the environmental side, it's interesting because exactly to the point that you made, Ben, the product story is so compelling, whether it's um, the move from solvent-borne to waterborne or the powder business we have, which is the second largest powder business in the world among the coatings players, and how environmentally friendly powder coatings are and the growth we've seen in that business, that's also a great story to what we do with the products themselves. I mean, we're constantly engineering our products so that our customers use less of them. And so relating to that environmental focus is also positioning the company's portfolio of good of goods and services, of products and services, and really building out the service and the digital side, which is something that we're doing pretty aggressively um, on, on a lot of the innovation work we're doing. But we can very easily get caught up in, we've got such a great story to tell that when we look inside our own four walls, it's easy to get lazy, frankly, in terms of how much we're pushing our own operations to become more environmentally sustainable. So we've been working on this for you know, this year and we'll be rolling out in the first or second quarter um, updated ESG goals. And I think we've been pretty aggressive in terms of how we're thinking about approaching um, in particular the E within ESG uh, and some of the commitments that, that we're gonna make there around using renewable energy, for example, modifying some of our production processes and just making sure that as a supplier to major industrial players in the world, major automotive makers in the world, et cetera, that we're lining up how aggressive we wanna be with where they're also wanting to go. But it's a, it's, a, it's a great story. And I think one that we're gonna talk about and tell in more detail in the early part of next year. So I look forward to sharing more with you about that because we've done a lot of really good work on that. Great. And one thing we discussed uh, at the beginning of the conversation was the difficulty associated with this company exploring some kind of transaction every two years or being part of some transaction every few years. And my sense is that makes it hard for the company to make long-term investments. Um, but I'm always a bit, like a big fan of companies that are willing to suffer short-term pain for long-term gain. So I'd love to hear, you know, because given that you're so focused on innovation and growth, like where are some areas where you are suffering some some short-term profitability hits and margin hits in order to, you know, three to five years from now have a, a really interesting new product set or, or offering? Hmm. Well, I think we've shown actually that we're willing to make some tough decisions that are going to affect short-term results. <clears throat> and we made one of those decisions back in 2017 
when we reset um, economics in terms with our global distribution network and our refinish business. And we knew that it was the right decision to make for the long-term health of the refinish business. But we also knew uh, that it was going to have a short-term impact on, on profitability. And, and it did. Um, but if you look at where we are in that business, we're a couple hundred basis points at least higher in EBITDA margin because of the decisions that we made back then. So I think we've shown that our willingness to do that. Um, but as we think about kind of outpaced and outsized um, innovation, we're working on um, some things internally that are, I think, going to be ground, that are going to be real leapfrog type of um, initiatives. And you'll see us invest uh, invest in those. And so is there additional, I don't want to call it R&D, I'll call it R&D technology and innovation investment that we could have flexed this year down or that we could have flexed down last year. Well, the fact of the matter is we actually did flex down some, but we reinvested, we redirected those dollars from fewer incremental projects into more long-term um, projects in our, our key businesses. And so I know it's a little cryptic, um, but we're working on some pretty, some pretty exciting things that I think could change the rules of the game. And we're also trying to take a little bit more, I encourage this with the team, of thinking about your portfolio, our portfolio of bets. And there are some that are low risk, low return. And there are some that are higher risk, high return. And it's okay for us to fail on some of the high return, high risk ones. We need some of them to work out, but not all of them are. And it's okay to fail. And that's another thing culturally, getting people comfortable with that coming out of DuPont, you know, has taken a lot of time and a lot of effort, but we're, we're, starting, to, we're starting to do that. And one of the tricks is really been rapid prototyping and failing frequently in smaller amounts. So a lot of the innovation we've done um, over the last two years, I'd say in particular, has been let's define an opportunity. Let's suppose we put a half a million dollars to it and we go after it absolutely as hard as we can with a Skunk Works team um, working on nothing but this. What would we want to know at the end of that after, let's just say, six months and $500,000 or not six months, three months and $500,000? What would we want to know? And if we proved it to be correct, we'd be willing to invest another $500,000. And so we've been applying much more of that methodology and sort of that, that muscle, that learning of people inside the company that it's okay to fail. And we've had some things that we've killed after the first month or three months of a special project. And we've had some things that we've extended out that I think are pretty interesting. So it's starting to, uh, it's starting to happen. And that's part of building you know, a long-term, independent, public company, innovative, high-growth mindset. And along those same lines, it's not, uh, along those lines, it sounds like there are a number of things that might be able to hit in the next few years. But what what are three or four things you think this company has to get right over the next you know few years for the stock to be a good investment for both employees and shareholders? I think the first one is actually one that requires a little bit of patience, and that's that automotive has been out of favor and it's been out of favor for a few years. We've taken down the cost structure in the business accordingly, but we have not hampered the growth of the business or to use the typical analogy, we've cut through the fat, we've cut into a little muscle in some cases, but 
we're not cutting the bone and we're still making key investments in R&D and technology in particular to make sure that we're staying ahead of competition in some cases and that we're building um, key capabilities in that business. Because when that business snaps back, after the amount of costs that we've taken out, changes we've tweaked in our customer portfolio and our product mix, um, it, it, it's, we're gonna be, it's gonna be a good place to be in automotive. And I think some of the recent shareholder changes we've had are exactly people you know, betting, you know, kind of betting on that. So I think that requires a little bit of patience. The other part that requires a little bit of patience is refinish. Uh, we continue to believe that refinish is a, a, a great business. And when you look at the long-term trends in terms of the growth and the size of the, of the car park, the growing middle class uh, around the world, refinish is a good business and it's a great place to be. The, you know, that, that trajectory was somewhat interrupted by COVID, but we'll eventually get back on that trajectory. Can I tell you it's going to be this quarter or next quarter or the one after? No, I can't. But I can tell you that what we've done and the investments we've made in that business are really good. So the first thing I think is being cognizant of, of that. Now, all that being said, the second thing I think we need to get right as a company for the stock to really work for investors is continuing to allocate capital intelligently and in a very disciplined way. And so you've seen us make truly strategic acquisitions. None of the investments that we've made on the M&A side have been to generate top line growth that we wish we had had um, organically that we didn't get because of market conditions. We've been very disciplined. Um, I don't think we've overpaid for anything uh, we've done and we're gonna continue to be uh, very capital allocation disciplined. Um, the third thing I think for the stock to really work for people is we continue to um, do a lot of work on very close adjacencies. Um, to what we do currently and changing some of our end market exposures to over time reduce our exposure to quote unquote transportation coatings or being seen as a transportation coatings company and being seen more broadly as an avant-garde performance materials uh, company. And that portfolio uh, transition and transformation has you know, somewhat been interrupted um, by, uh, by COVID, but it's very much on our radar screen and we have efforts you know, underway in, in, that, in that regard. And then lastly, I think it just comes down to basic blocking and tackling and execution in terms of how we run the business. And if we execute and even some of the things that we want to go right, go right, I think we're gonna be hugely successful. We've talked about a lot of different things uh, and a lot of different business lines and a lot of different opportunities you have. Um, but I'm going to close with our favorite question. And the one we ask all of our guests is, what would you say is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of your company or your culture or your businesses? I think overall, people underestimate what a great business the automotive aftermarket refinish business is. Um, in any meeting with investors, um, you know, the first question is usually something about light vehicle. And if I look at the total time in any investor call or conversation or meeting that we spend on the trans, you know, the mobility side of the business, it's probably 75% of the meeting, 80% of the meeting, and 20, 25% on refinish and on industrial. 
And Refinish is a fantastic business. We have a huge technological lead. It's the highest margin business in the industry, consolidated manufacturing base, highly fragmented customer base. We're innovating uh, in digital and automation in a very, very big way um, in, in Refinish. And so I think you know, that business is only going to expand and we're going to be even more strongly positioned. And I think if people you know, really dug in and understood that, that business a little bit more, um, you know, they would realize that overall Exalta, you know, there's still a pretty big disconnect between where we're, you know, where we've traded at and where we and where we should be uh, be trading. Um, that I think is probably the biggest element that's misunderstood. Then, well, as a shareholder uh, myself and as our firm, I think we would concur with that. Just underappreciation of the uh, of the awesome refinished business, but. Uh, Robert, this has been incredible. Thank you so much. I can't believe how much we covered and how many ways we 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 jumped up and down and all around. Uh, but uh, thank you so much for being on. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Ben. I, I really appreciate the, the invitation and the and the breadth of the questions, and hopefully it'll be helpful to other people as well. Great. Thanks again. All right. Bye bye now. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.